Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Basu and Gadai Notebook. We're October 23rd, and uh, tonight, Monday, the Canadians are in Buffalo to face the Sabres. Busy, busy week ahead. We're going to discuss all that with Arpin Basu. Hello, Arpin. How you doing today? Makatwana, I'm doing well. Yeah. Um, yeah. Getting through a, a crazy, hectic weekend with my kids' games and the Canadians' game. And anyhow. No one cares about that, but yeah, I'm excited for a busy week with the Canadians and uh, your son made the lot, team, a right? Lot of games. My son, yeah, my son made the double letter team for the first time, so that's exciting for him. Daughter's playing volleyball and basketball this year instead of just basketball like last year. Um, okay, other daughter was away at a tournament, a water polo tournament, so out of my hair, I guess. But she, <laughs> she, did, she did well. Uh, she did well as well, but yeah. Um, big week for the Canadians. They're playing as many games in six days as they did in the previous two weeks. Yeah. So quite a week. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And this is, yeah, the, uh, the busier schedule is going to be something that we're going to touch on today. Uh, obviously, uh, you know, by the time that people, uh, listen to the, this podcast, I mean, it's going to be moved a little bit to discuss, uh, uh, too much in depth what's uh, what's in store for tonight's game against Buffalo, but there are some interesting aspects um, that we can develop, mainly probably uh, regarding the Atlantic Division, the way that things uh, have uh, you know uh, have shaped out out of the gate. Uh, obviously, it's Monday, which means that we're going to answer questions from our listeners. Uh, so it's going to be the Monday mailbag. Um, you know, we're also going to touch a little bit on um, uh, on. Jonathan Kovacevic, who's been having quietly very good beginning to the season, and um, also the centralized draft, which has been a topic throughout the year, uh, throughout the, the league, I say. Um, so we'll discuss that towards the end. But first of all, I mean, last podcast, we, um, we brought up the fact that Nick Suzuki, uh, you know, Martin Saint Louis was hoping to see more from him, and he was. Mm-hmm. Not entirely satisfied with his play, and uh, he said, "Well, Nick Suzuki could be the first one to admit it." But it's interesting to see that right after he said that, the very next game, Nick Suzuki bounced back and produced a very, uh, very effective effort with Cole Caulfield. Yeah, yeah, really looked like himself. I mean, I think that was really the concern for Martin Saint Louis, and as it turns out, Nick Suzuki as well. I mean, it was pretty commendable on his part after the game on Saturday. Um, to immediately acknowledge what Martin St. Louis was talking about and confirming what Martin St. Louis said, that, that Nick would say this himself, saying that he'd been bad flat out the two previous games, uh, and that he he did a lot of sort of inward, you know, looking at himself in the mirror to some yeah. extent and, uh, and had a chat with Martin about it, um, talked about getting back to basics and how, how once you do that, then you can start to add the elements that are not basic in Nick Suzuki's game. And I think we saw that uh, as the game moved along where, where he was using, we saw more of his sort of deceptive little hook plays and, and, and the things he, he does when he's feeling comfortable with his game. Um, so uh, interesting in retrospect, I mean, I did not that I noticed this during the game, but to hear him say that, how that process played out over the period of one game, you know, going, Focusing on on the basics, the fundamentals, the things you learned as a kid, as Nick Suzuki said. Uh, but I think getting that power play goal early, banking a puck off Sean Monahan's stick, I mean, really essentially scoring that goal. I mean, good on Sean Monahan for having a stick there, but that was basically Nick Suzuki's goal. And Cole Caulfield was an excellent pass. Yeah. Uh, 
find Suzuki prior to that. Uh, but as soon as that happened, you see the comfort coming back and you slowly see over the course of the game, Nick Suzuki looking more like the Nick Suzuki that we've been grown accustomed to seeing. Um, so we'll see if he can carry that over, uh, not only into tonight's game against in Buffalo, but throughout the week. Uh, but an excellent first step after, uh, you know, I think obviously we made a lot of Martin answering that question, honestly, as you mentioned, you know, that he doesn't want to lie. And the reality was that Nick was playing well. Uh, but, you know, I thought it was an interesting sort of window into the relationship between the captain and the coach and how they, how they addressed it and how quickly, um, how quickly Nick responded to some, to some, some inward looking moments, you know, yeah. where he, he took ownership of the situation and, and his first shot at redeeming himself. He did. Let's see how long it lasts now. And it's interesting because Suzuki also has been, I mean, he's accustomed us in the past to, um, to have strong starts to the season. He tends to have, uh, to be very, very effective and productive early on in the year. He, Gets into a lull at some point in the midseason. Because the, the team's healthy. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. And then it finishes strong again. So it's more like in the middle where sometimes, you know, there might be uh, issues maybe of tiredness, over usage, or things like that. But um, so, so it's been a little different, uh, you know, just out of the gate for him with those first uh, few games. But I like the fact that against Washington, he barely spent any time in his own end. Uh, you know, he was very, very efficient in making sure that the puck would get out of his, uh, of his, uh, zone and his, his own line and also Newark's line more so in the first period and may, may, let's say the first half of the game, mm -hmm. his, his line and Newark's line also spent a lot of time, uh, in the capital zone. And the other thing is, uh, Suzuki also after four games, As a 63% rate at the faceoff circle, the Canadian centermen in general are super effective uh, so far in the year because you've got Evans, who's at 64%, Monaghan's at 63.9%, and Suzuki at 63%. Uh, most of the games have been played at home. There might be an effect to that, um, but it's interesting and encouraging to see Suzuki being very effective in, in that, that part of the game where he needs to be. Well, yeah, I think the I think the possession, the possession that you mentioned was uh, was a direct result of that. Um, you know, I looked at a, I, I took a glance at Natural Stat Trick kind of halfway through the game, as you mentioned, and and I think Caulfield and and Raphael Harvey Pinard had not been on the ice for a five on five shot attempt against. It was something like ten nothing. Yeah, uh, I think Suzuki was twelve one or something to that effect. They finished in the seventies percentage wise. Uh, for Corsi and 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 you know kind of led the team in expected goal percentage, but you know yeah, it's I think the faceoffs do have something. I, I, let's be honest, that's not going to continue. They're not going to have three guys in the 60s. <laughs> no team is going to have no? three guys in the sixties. But Suzuki getting off to a good start uh, is a good sign. Um, just in terms of you know, obviously they've only played one road game prior to the game in Buffalo tonight, uh, but. Uh, Suzuki in that one road game won 11 of his 17 faceoffs. So, um, you know, that's 64.7%. Uh, yeah. He was 62.2 at home. Uh, but, you know, we'll see. And, and <clears throat> um, you know, Alex Newhook is, is still not 
and it's probably going to take a while for him to be proficient in the face-off circle. He's below 50%, the only, uh, which has been the story for him throughout his career. Um, yet another similarity to Kirby Doc. But uh, if they can have the three other, if Nick Suzuki could join Evans and Monaghan as being reliable face-off guys, it, it will create uh, just more opportunities for Suzuki to get out there in different situations because um, as the right shot option in the face-off circle, it's almost always Jake Evans in the defensive zone. Uh, but, you know, if you want Suzuki to be able to change the momentum in a game, if you find yourself that you have been playing a lot in the defensive zone, it would be nice uh, for Marty to have the confidence to send him out for a right, you know, a right side D-zone draw and uh, and do that for him. Yeah. And so instead of having to default to Evans all the time. So... The Canadians, uh, so it, we said he can be better. He was against Washington. Let's see if it carries over against uh, Buffalo. Uh, the Canadians are facing so uh, the Sabres on, uh, tonight on Monday. And it's funny because we both perceive the Sabres to be the most promising rebuilding team in the Atlantic, um, yeah. even more so than, than Detroit or Ottawa. But it's Detroit and Ottawa that really have had the strongest start. Um, you know, the Sabres Detroit, have got... Detroit especially, yeah. Especially Detroit, yeah, absolutely. With, with uh, obviously, Alex Dabrinkit being absolutely on a tear right now. Uh, mm. Tage Thompson, who's the best, uh, you know, goal scorer on the Sabres, has been quiet so far. So has been uh, Alex Tuck. Um, but what do you make of this? I mean, is it something that you think is going to last? Because they're... The Canadians are really in a in a long term fight against those three teams to reverse, you know, the the order and the standings that's been so so much of the same for the for so many years. But now mm -hmm. those teams are climbing their way back. Do you think that the Canadians are closing the gap on those three teams? And do you think that the Sabres uh, woes will continue for very long? No, I don't. Um, I don't think they'll continue for very long. I mean, listen, it's 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 early. Uh, I know that you can't you can't ease your way into the season anymore, especially if you have playoff aspirations like the Sabers do. So, you know, if I'm if I'm in the Buffalo front office or coaching staff, I'm concerned that you're getting mm -hmm. off to a slow start. But you know, I mean, Devon Levi, who's not going to play against the Canadians, is kind of banged up. Uh, they'll get Eric Comrie. Uh, who's had one start so far this season, did well, stopped 24, 25 shots. Uh, but, you know, Levi's one in three and 3.26 goals against 892 save percentage. It's, 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 this was the concern for the Buffalo Sabres because outside of goaltending, you would think, you know, they have a pretty impressive young up and coming team. Um, you know, the fact that they've only scored 12 goals through five games is, is, is another concern. Um, but that I would imagine that's going to regulate itself. It's yeah. will they get the goaltending when it matters? Uh, will they get the goaltending when that, that when that scoring boost comes? Um, but in terms of the Canadians catching up, I mean, I just don't think the Sabres have so many pieces in place. Listen, to, you know, prior to the season, locking up Rasmus Dallin long term, locking up Owen yeah. Power long term. I mean, it's, you know, Tage Thompson's on a long-term deal. Took a real risk on him, and it's it's already paid off. Uh, you know, they, they have... Dylan Cousins has come into his own, too. Dylan Cousins as well, who, who you know, somehow got paid less than Cole Caulfield. So, 
good for him. Good for Cole, <laughs> I mean. Um, but it's, you know, they do have a lot of the pieces, just like Ottawa has a lot of their pieces locked up long-term. And, you know, you look at the Canadians and they basically have Suzuki and Caulfield locked up long-term. Obviously, Doc and Newhook are on, on pretty team-friendly deals, assuming they kind of hit their ceiling and, and Doc will have to wait till next year to see it. But, you know, you look at Ottawa, you look at Buffalo, Detroit's hot start notwithstanding. I don't put them in the same category just because they don't they don't seem to have the same number of core pieces on the team no. and and not only on the team but locked up long term and the Canadians definitely don't have that. So, no matter what happens in the game, uh the division outlook for the Canadians still looks very murky and I I, I just I don't I'm not quite sure well, I think we discussed, I mean, you know, the Canadians sort of banking on building a really stout, big, mobile, modern defense core with a lot of the prospects that they have. Uh, and they don't even need all of them to hit. Like, that's the beauty of having so many is that, you know, all of them won't hit. But they have so many of them that if they allow things to play out, they should be able to get a group of six defensemen within two or three years yeah. that rivals perhaps some of the best defense cores in the NHL from top to bottom. So um, that will require some development that will require some time. But when you look at the firepower up front, I mean, you know, Tage Thompson, Dylan cousins, even Jeff Skinner, who's, who's, who's become, you know, sort of rediscovered himself as an effective player for them. Alex Tuck, as you mentioned, uh, you know, the list goes on. And they'll have uh, Zach, Quinn, Quinn Peterka, who are like very good young players too. Yeah, and Zach Benson, who's you know, who's made the team at yeah. this age and is looking really good. I think he's out as well on Mondays. He's he's banged up as well. Peyton Krebs is a good two-way option. I mean, it's it's just a long, long list of really promising players. I didn't even mention Matt Savoy, who I think was just sent down to the HL on a conditioning stint. Yes, he was. Uh, but um, but he was on he was on season opening IR. So it's it's really a long list. Yuri Kulich we haven't mentioned. Noah Osland we haven't mentioned. You know, <laughs> Isaac Rosian. I mean, it's just like it goes on and on with this team. So they're in a position, but those are all forwards that we mentioned. They have their two core D. Um, and they like Samuelson too. I mean, they've got – And they like Samuelson, yeah. So, I mean, but it's it's – when you look at their forward group, you look at Ottawa's forward group, and to a lesser extent Detroit, who, you know, used their first-round pick on Nate Danielson – have obviously Lucas Raymond is is the, they're waiting for him to sort of bust out and, and show what he will become. Uh, Dylan Larkin locked in long term, but it's it's the Canadians are really going about it um, counter to that. You know, it's it's the the Red Wings obviously have cider. I don't need to mention that Jake Wallman, who's who's starting to look good, is sort of their version of Jonathan Kovacevic. I feel in terms of like age and. How long yeah. it's taken him to get here? Although he's not, he's paid much more than Jonathan Kovacevic. We'll get we'll get to that later. Uh, but you know, same. It's I don't know how you see it, but I see it like it's it would be hard for the Canadians to match this firepower up front. So it's actually kind of smart that they go about it the other way. Let's match. Let's build a, a really sick defense core and and have a forward group that can um, that can feed off of that. Yeah, I can feed off, take off, take from their lead, you know. Well, you have to go with what you got, and what they've got is tons of prospects on defense. So it could it could seem like it is a strategy to counter the firepower from the other side, but it's also it's just assessing 
who are the tools that you've got in your organization and if they try to you know to trade you know the firepower for firepower yeah they they might the Montreal Canadiens might come up short uh against a team like Buffalo eventually or they'll probably try to fix it uh through trades or or the free agency uh over time but it's clearly we we mentioned it earlier in another episode it's clearly the 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 chips that they've got on defense that will make a difference uh but i continue to think that the sabers despite the fact that they they've lost three of their first five games um are still the most dangerous team out there uh you know to to reestablish the order the Atlantic division it might not happen as soon as this year um and when you see the attendance numbers also in buffalo maybe that the fans are still a bit skeptical because it's not exactly as though the arena over there has been full since the beginning of the season um but we'll see i mean it's uh i'm i'm not sold on detroit i i find that they're they're I mean, Debrinket's been great ad for them, amazing so far, and I think that he's very mm -hmm. comfortable playing there. But you were mentioning their prospects. Uh, I'm not sure to which extent they're fully committed and and trustful in them panning out. You know, well, no, Whether... that's why they keep signing these free agents for some yeah. reason. I mean, it's you know, it's I think I think that's pretty clear. Um, definitely, you know, yeah. Sebastian Cosa, maybe. Who know? But again, I mean, goalies are so hard to project, and he's he's got lots of tools. Uh, could be their goalie of the future. Simon Edmondson, I think, has taken a little longer than maybe they had hoped or anticipated. Um, I thought so, he'd be on their roster this year, but they signed another I mean, guy. So, yeah. yeah. So it's, you know, they traded for Jeff Petrie for crying out loud. I mean, <laughs> yeah, who hasn't been playing much. So no. yeah, so Montreal, I think, continue to be the Canadians continue to be behind in terms of their their development and their rebuild. And mm. I don't see anything that suggests that they're going to do anything to accelerate it or that their play is going to close the gap in short term. And maybe the, you don't the think fact they're going to do anything to accelerate it like next off season. Well, maybe, but I mean the, the performances from this year, especially with doc going down, I don't, I don't, I don't see them as a product on the ice, as them developing with the team that we're going to see, that they're going to make such a big leap forward in season. Oh, yeah. yeah. That you're, oh, you're going sure. to say, oh, okay, they're ready. Uh, you know, they're, they'll knock at the door as soon as next year. They might, but it might happen over the course of next summer more than because of the, the growth that we'll see on the ice. I mean, mm -hmm. they can still they can surprise us, but when you start the season – You know, by losing Kirby Doc right off the bat, it doesn't bot too well. So, no, um, yeah. So, and also the other thing is, just like the Canadians, the the Sabers have been carrying three goalies since the beginning of the year. You were mentioning that Levi was uh, was banged up, and it's Kamaru who's facing the Canadians, which means that Ukepeka Lukonen, uh, whose parents have bought. Uh, letter K in in bulk. <laughs> uh, yeah, he's <laughs> he's got he's yeah. Usually you buy a vowel on Wheel of Fortune. They exactly. Bought, no, they, they bought the letter K. Yeah. Exactly. My his his dad could have been a pitcher in the Major League Baseball. <laughs> yeah, that would have been right, amazing. Exactly. Yeah. So <laughs> so Luke Conan has got to has yet to play a game uh, so far, and and it sort of echoes the situation in Montreal, right? With uh, mm -hmm. Caden Primo who has not seen action yet. Now the Canadians are are playing five games in eight days, five games yeah. in eight nights, because people. 
like to say, well, four and six, but you have to to in, uh, add to this the fact that mm -hmm. on Sunday they'll be traveling to Vegas and they're going to play on Monday in Vegas. So that's a very, very busy stretch. Do you see... Not only it, that, they're practicing Sunday in Vegas. I know. Yeah. yeah that, that one surprises me quite a bit. Mm -hmm. So um, if there's going to be a time to play Caden Primo, it's going to be during these next five games. Do you see that happening? I mean, it's hard to listen. You know, you're coming off a performance. Jake Allen is starting again tonight in Buffalo. We'll see how he does. But you're coming off a Jake Allen performance that was very promising. Uh, played a really solid game against Washington. Uh, you know, Sam Montambo has shown flashes uh, of good and bad. I kind of I'm of the opinion that they should give Caden Primo a start uh, at some point in these five games, um, but I don't know why. But I just have the impression we won't see it. Yeah, I think that they're, you know, they they do want to work with the tandem that they have. I still think the Canadians are just playing sort of a game of chicken with the rest of the league in terms of when to put Caden on waivers. It's, it's, it's clear to me. I had a chance to chat with Caden Primo after practice on Thursday. Um, just kind of just a chat, just informal. It wasn't an interview per se, but just to see how he's doing. And listen, he's, he's he was not, he didn't hide the fact that this is not ideal. He needs to play some games. He's like, you know, it's great, sure that, it is. Yeah. It's great that they have the second ice sheet in Brossard so that one goalie, You know, during practice, one goalie always goes to that second sheet and works with uh, with Eric Eric Emon, um on their own. Uh, so he's getting that time, but nothing nothing you know nothing equals game time, and uh, it's a little discouraging for him. I mean, listen, it's it is what it is. The the rule is in place to help people like Caden Primo. Actually, you know, the waiver rules are how they are. To help people like Samuel Montambo, who finds himself in Montreal thanks to these rules, um, the Canadians are, I think, somewhat oddly concerned about losing Caden Primo on waivers. Listen, maybe he will be lost on waivers. If he were, it would put them in a bit of a bad situation in the sense that you know I don't think they 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 love having Strauss Mann be the goal the number two in Laval behind Jack. I, I think he's actually number one. He's playing more games than Dobish. Well, there you go. So, I mean, it's. I think they'd rather have a tandem of Primo Dobesh, and um, it's. It's just that it's. I, I understand why this has gone on as long as it has, and it's not as if the Canadians are the only one. As you mentioned, Philly has is carrying a third goalie. Detroit is carrying a third goalie. Buffalo is carrying a third goalie. The only one of the five teams that opened the season carrying three goalies who is who's alleviated the situation are the LA Kings, who got. Uh, big save, Dave Riddich, <laughs> through waivers on October 11th. Um, it just, you know, it's, it strikes me that you look around the league, which I did, and you look at all the backup goalies. I don't know how you can rationally look at all of them and say, well, Caden Primo is a better option than this guy. I mean, there's a handful that maybe, maybe you could make that argument, but it's not as if Caden Primo's lit the league on fire. You know, it's no, but okay, well, let's say. Let's take a team like the Edmonton Oilers, for example, uh, who've been struggling between the pipes, who don't have any money against the cap. Well, especially now with with Connor McDavid being out, I mean they can't even recall a guy. I think they'll have to do with the uh, with the roster that they've got. But 
let's say with even with uh, with McDavid back, don't you think that it could be a good option for them to manage a way to have three goalies and themselves, you know, just like those other teams, and give a shot to a younger goalie who might end up producing better results than than Jack Campbell, and you know, they, they, you just give it a shot with three goalies for a while and see maybe. who between those three will emerge and be But the guy. Is- Is that third goalie Caden Primo? I mean, your, your theory is not bad. Like, yeah, maybe that could be a solution to the current situation with with their goalies underperforming. But if I'm Ken Holland, do I tell myself, like, oh, maybe Caden Primo can steal the job from this big-ticket free agent I signed a year ago and, and, and a guy who was up for Rookie of the Year last year? I mm-hmm. mean, it's it's it just doesn't seem plausible to me. It's like it's it's – I can't imagine – Like, again, that strategy makes sense, but Caden Primo's not the guy to execute that strategy. He's just not. It's just – so, I don't know. I mean, it's – listen, the Canadians are convinced, and they clearly know more than you and I know combined about what goes on in the league and 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 whatnot. Um, but I do think – and maybe it's not now necessarily, but I think once they get through this stretch of five games and eight nights – Um, and even maybe once they get back from that road trip, you know, I mean, they'll, they'll play in Arizona. Maybe that would be an opportunity to get yeah. Primo a game. Uh, then they play in St. Louis. Maybe that would be an opportunity to get Primo a game. But once they get back from that trip, I think this situation needs to resolve itself one way or the other. And, and maybe other, other pieces will move around the league, uh, that would allow them, that would allow themselves to get out of the situation. But the other thing is, is that the longer they wait, You know, an injury can pop up. Like, it can make it harder to get Primo through waivers the longer you wait. If, yeah, but the waiver is not the only thing, though. If injuries happen throughout the league, then the trade becomes more likely. Yeah, yeah, that's, I mean, that's the thing. And so, but what do you get? Because you were, you're you mentioning Mathieu Savoie from Buffalo being on a conditioning stint. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, you don't have to be injured to go on, on a conditioning loan. If you don't nope. play, you can be sent down for 14 days. And I think yep. that. If the Canadians decide to to continue with Allen and Montembeau, give them between the two of them, give them the five games that just to sort out where the competition is at between those two. I mean, Jake Allen just played the first really, really good game from a goalie that we've seen uh, so far this season. Certainly better than Montembeau against Chicago, I would say, even though Montembeau had a good start against Chicago. But this performance from Allen against Washington was stellar. So, mm-hmm. But there's a competition. It's yet to be determined who's going to take the bulk of the job or at least going to be labeled the 1A to the 1B. It's clear that it's going to be a tandem, but there's who's going to have the the upper end between the two. It, it, it's, an, it's debatable, and I think that the, the Canadians are testing the waters to see who's going to run with it. But as they do that, they're not going to be able to provide primo Uh, with much of an opportunity in the short term. So if by sending him down and having him play some games, having him help out a very young decor in Laval, who's not only young, but also very uh, offensive-oriented. When you look at mm-hmm. the blue line uh, with the Rocket, a lot of those guys are really offensive first. Um, so it, 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 makes, it makes them vulnerable in the back end. So you need a goalie, a guy like, Primo could be could step up being you know to to just stop the uh, 
you know, to, to, to stop, well, to stop a few bucks actually. And yes, exactly. yeah, and help them out. Um, that's a short term situation. That's a short term bandaid solution. Um, mm -hmm. So something will have to give. I agree with you, but I think that we will see that probably around the end of November. I'm not surprised at all that this situation has lasted this long. I can see it have continuing for another three weeks probably. But after that, I mean, they'll have to find out a solution big time. So, so look at the thing about Caden Primo. And again, at 24, you know, at 24 years old, you start to wonder about players, skaters, but goalies could figure something out after that age. Sure. Look at Caden, Caden Primo's save percentages in the AHL throughout his career. First AHL season, 33 games played, 908 save percentage. Then he played 16 games in the AHL in 2020-21, the, the COVID-shortened season, uh, 909. Mm. 21-22, 33 games, 909. 2022, 23, 41 games, 909. Consistent? Just, <laughs> yes. Consistent, but consistently fine. Yeah. You know, those aren't bad numbers, but they're fine. You know, yeah. it's not really, they're not numbers not that amazing. scream at you that this guy is ready for the next level. Yeah. They're not dominant. He had an excellent playoffs in 21-22 with the Rocket. Um, that should be noted. Uh but didn't really follow it up by show, by demonstrating a step last season uh, that, that suggested that he was ready for NHL action. And that would also suggest that he would be this hot commodity on the waiver wire, but it's, he obviously needs more time in the AHL. Yeah. So, I mean, the conditioning stint is great and gets you a couple of weeks. We'll get you. They'll probably strategically pick a portion of the rocket schedule where there's as many games as possible in that 14 day stretch, which they often do in situations like this. But yeah, he definitely needs to to play some games, and he needs and and you know if the Canadians value him as much as they appear to, uh, you know, the longer this goes, the more his development time is being somewhat wasted. Yeah, but you were asking about goalies that are 24 and the fact that you know their development curve, which is not the same as for skaters. You look at Aiden Hill, who was in between the pipes uh -huh. for Vegas when they they won the cup. Uh, he won the cup. At 26 years old, he started his career, you know, bouncing, uh, well, going between the AHL and the uh, the Arizona Coyotes for many years. I mean, he was a decent prospect for them, but he was not setting the world on fire. And eventually, and he was a very affordable option to them, and they decided to move on. He ended up in, in San Jose. Another team that was looking for options between uh, the pipes uh, was not retained there either. Ends up in, in Vegas at 26 years old. And next thing you know, he's there to lift the Stanley Cup. So um, there's all sorts of situations, all sorts of, of scenarios where you can you can compare and say, well, Caden Primo might not be this today, but he might be that next year, two years from now, who knows. But... I, I cannot blame him to, you know, to stump his feet a bit and chomping at the bit and say, you know what, when is my turn ever going to come? And that's yeah. why I think it, for a guy who doesn't play at all, he comes back as a as a consistent topic around the Montreal Canadiens for that specific reason. Yeah, and I think bringing up Aiden Hill is interesting too because I think everyone assumes 
the Tampa Bay Lightning are sort of waiting to pounce, and maybe I think to some extent they are. But, you know, who's to say um, when you look at Aiden Hill leading the Golden Knights to a Stanley Cup, um, you know, by playing adequately, I mean, I think there were certain games during the playoffs where he played really well, but I mean, really the team, Vegas's team game was more responsible for how yeah. that how that happened than, than Aiden Hill necessarily. And, you know, the lightning are a very analytically inclined organization. And when you look at goaltenders, uh, just like, just by taking a step back and looking just at the entire field of goaltenders, you know, you have your elite goaltenders, one of whom plays for the Tampa Bay lightning, but is currently injured, obviously Andre Vasilevsky. And then you have sort of the, the next tier, And then the next tier is a whole bunch of goalies and who out of that tier is at the top of the tier, who out of that tier is at the bottom of the tier changes every year. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm not, I'm not entirely convinced. Like if, you know, I think everyone looks at, you know, Jonas Johansson and Matt Tompkins, you know, it's easily the most unheralded group of goaltenders in the NHL. Uh, Johansson are four. Johansson's the guy, our former colleague, uh, and still a co- well, he's still my colleague at the Athletic. But I mean, um, say it, a former colleague of mine, <laughs> a former colleague of yours, yeah. Um, once mentioned. Uh, sorry, I'm just, I'm just uh, totally John Vogel is is his name. I totally blanked there for a second, but John Vogel used to cover the Sabers for the Athletic and and the Buffalo News before that, and Jonas. Johansson was a Buffalo Sabres goaltending prospect who got lost on waivers. John Vogel just went on this tirade about how ter- he's the worst goalie he's ever seen. Oh, really? He's, he's in practice, he couldn't. He couldn't. I, just, I was just looking for the tweet, but it was just—it was hilarious. It was so. Uh, just I've never seen a reporter just scathingly rip a player like this on his way out. Um, and you know, I mean, his career arc has reflected that. You know, he's been in many organizations. Tampa is just the latest one but has never really put up any numbers that would suggest that he's going to be anything. But now he's playing behind, you know, Buffalo, Colorado, Florida, Colorado again, um, and Tampa now. Mm. So, you know, it's, it's an interesting play by the lightning. If they just decide to go with these guys and wait for Vasilevsky to be back and hope they can at least tread water, if not maintain a sort of solid playoff positioning. But, I don't know when you look at compare Caden Primo to Jonas Johansson and Matt Tompkins. Is there anything to suggest the Lightning would be like, oh, that's a huge upgrade? Let's no, do I mean, that. it's worth rolling the dice. Maybe I mean if this isn't working out, but I mean currently, as it stands right now, this is why this is why I struggle to understand why what the danger is because maybe it's not Tampa, maybe there's some other team out there that the Canadians mm-hmm. are worried about, but it's it just seems like the longer you wait circumstances could change that would lead to uh, perhaps make it more likely that he gets picked up on waivers. Yeah, but the more the more the situation drags on, it means that he's not going to play, he's not going to increase his value, and he's not increased the likelihood that he's going to get picked up. And the reason why he's in that bubble situation and he's not an obvious solution for the Montreal Canadiens is that he has not been convincing so far. So if he has not been convincing enough for the Montreal Canadiens so far, 
there's a chance that he might not be convincing enough for any of the other 31 teams. So uh, it's... And it's, the last thing, just the last thing to keep in yeah. mind is that if Caden Primo does get picked up on waivers, let's just say, which the Canes are clearly trying to avoid, um, I think the chances are pretty good he winds up back on waivers at some point. You know, mm. if, if he goes and they, he, he doesn't perform as the, the whatever team picks him up expects, uh, they would be forced to keep him on their roster. Um, they can't send him down to the AHL without putting him back on waivers. If the Canadians are the only ones to put in a claim once that happens, then they could send him back to Laval uh, without having him go through waivers again. So that would be, an, I guess, an ideal scenario. But um, I find it unlikely... I find the unlikeliest scenario in this case is Caden Primo getting picked up on waivers, going to another team, totally being lights out and staying on that team the rest of the season, never being on waivers again. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. It's But the, one thing's for sure, even if they want to get out of this conundrum, they'll need a third goalie because, you know, Jake Allen gets hurt. Next no, thing you know, Caden you have Primo. Huh? They need Caden Primo. They That's need it. Him to be around. Or they need, yeah. they need Caden Primo or any... Or David Rittek, you know, any other, any form of third goalie that could help out at the NHL level. Because you don't want to turn to Strassman or you don't want to turn to Jakob Dobish. So you, you, need, no. you need a third string goalie because injuries will happen. So. All right, let's get to our mailbag because we got a, lot of, yeah. got a lot of questions again this week. Thank you, everyone. I know. I know, this is great. A lot of, a lot of, a lot of interaction, a lot of engagement. We're really into. How uh, how into it you guys are? So <laughs> should we get should we get started? I think we had a couple we had a well, couple on LTIR that we wanted to to kind of tackle first. Yeah, right? yeah. This one was sent uh, to our email address by Dylan McGuire. Uh, Dylan says, "I wanted to I wanted to hear your thoughts on how the Canadians could use the LTIR space they'll get from Doc's injury. It's not a ton, but they can. But could they get another pick for a player like Connor Garland or Matthew Joseph?" And then try to flip them at the deadline, or would they only target pending UFAs? Um, if you want to do a flip, it has to be pending UFAs because Garland and Joseph. I mean, it's interesting because those two guys are on the block. Those two guys, their their contracts are problematic for their respective teams. So I understand where you come from with those two names, but they having three years left on uh, on their respective deals, it's just too cumbersome for the Canadians to say, well, we're going to use our LTIR money this year. but And then when Doc is in the lineup next year, we still mm-hmm. have to have enough money on our cap to, to pay a Garland or a Joseph. So I don't think that if the Canadians were to get some sort of asset to, to take Joseph, for example, off the Senator's hands, um, they would have to add a sweetener after if they want to get rid of the next two years of his deal. So yeah. I think they would. It would be um, uh, what's the saying with Peter uh, Rob Peter to pay Paul something like that. Uh, yeah, I, something yeah. like that. Yeah. So yeah. I, I don't think that I don't think it would be a worthy uh, movement of uh, you know uh, transactional movement. Uh, that being said. I mean, the Canadians could certainly choose to be brokers on certain deals, or take some, take a play, identify a player that they could whip into shape during the course of the season, uh, no matter his his price tag, and say, well, towards the uh, 
to, towards the trade deadline if as the guy is a rental and about to become a UFA, well, the Canadians could retain some money on his contract and then get some additional value for him, but not on guys that have three years left on their deal. No, exactly. And I think the, the main the main benefit of all the LTIR space that the Canadians have right now, which they're going to lose four and a half million of it when Dvorak comes back, probably around November 4th, um, will, uh, we'll, you know... They, we just saw it. The main benefit: the Canadians calling Yul Armia back up, being able to carry him as an extra for now. Uh, that's a luxury you have when you have tons of LTIR space. You know, I mean, it's it's really injuries will not be an issue for this team in terms of co- calling people up from Laval uh, as they were in the past. Um, you know, and that's really the big benefit of of you know when everyone was asking, you know, why what's the big difference between off season LTIR and in season LTIR? Well, that's it is that off-season LTIR basically locks you into a number where it's, it's almost no flexibility. Injuries cause massive headaches from a cap perspective, whereas now they have no headaches from a cap perspective. I mean, they, they would really need, you know, I was going to say historic, but they would need a similar injury situation to last year for it to really become somewhat problematic. But there's no there's no real stuff. So I don't – so, you know, there was another question from from Charles – spelled with three R's on, on Twitter that was sent in or X about the Canadians making a trade with Doc on LTIR. And I mean, they might, but I don't think Doc going on LTIR really changes the situation much. I mean, they've gone from having roughly 6 million in LTIR space to nine and a half million in LTIR space. So in rough terms, uh, does that really make a difference? Are they really going to be able to get through all that? Are they really going to be able to, um, to spend that? In a trade, I, I don't see it. I just mm. don't see it. But but definitely brokering deals around the t- trade deadline um, becomes that much easier. Yeah. And you know, and carrying Yolarmia and not playing him becomes that much easier. So I don't think I don't anticipate anything big happening um, off of this. But uh, um, but you never know. So there's also speaking of Doc. Um... Karim, actually, there's a couple of people that seem to make the connection between losing talk and finishing bottom five in the league this year. So mm-hmm. I'll, I'll read Karim's question and I'll, I'll, I'll ask you to have your comment on it. But so Karim says, having already lost Doc for the season and Gouli for a stretch, is anyone buying that we will finish above bottom five? I like how we are playing, but how feasible is it to believe we will fight for a playoff spot? Doesn't seem likely, but I'm open to hope. So, what do you make well, those of that? Are, those are two very different bars. I mean, it's it's, it's bottom five and yeah. making the playoffs. There's a whole bunch of stuff in between those two things. Um, making the playoffs? No, I don't think it's all that feasible. Listen, anything's possible, and you know, maybe I'll have to eat those rolls. But I don't see I don't see a scenario in which the Canadians manage to to move up far enough in their division and to grab a wild card spot. So I just, I just don't see it. Um, that said, bottom five, I mean, sure, they might finish bottom five. Uh, losing Doc definitely hurts their ability to finish higher than that. And maybe in the long term, big picture, Canadians would benefit from another bottom five finish. Uh, but, you know, I don't, I don't, if they stay relatively healthy, if, if they don't lose more guys, other than Doc for the season. I mean, just remember last year, like, you know, Caulfield, Slavkovsky, 
Gooley, Doc, Jack just along the list. Jack Eyes, just Monahan. all sorts of yeah. players whose seasons ended. Uh, if it stays at Doc, and then after, from now on, it's just injuries more like Gooley's, you know, sort of normal, dinged up, miss a few games injuries. Yeah, I think they have a chance to finish higher than the bottom five. I mean, listen, they've shown an ability to compete uh, five on five for sure thus far this season. Special teams are still an issue, but most of the games played at five on five, and at five on five, the Canadians have been a competitive team. They haven't played like a murderer's row of teams yet. Um, we're going to get that this week, somewhat. I don't think Buffalo really is in that realm, but you know they're, they're playing Vegas. Um, there's some tougher games coming up. Obviously, Arizona and St. Louis are not are not that tough, but it's it's uh, you know we'll we'll find out. We'll see. But I th- I don't think a bottom five finish is a given just because Kirby Doc got injured. Yeah, I think that if you base only your argument on the fact that last year, had they been healthier, they for sure they would not have been a bottom five team. Well, by that logic, they're not going to be a top a bottom five team this year. But the other component to that is how better are the other teams? And yeah. if you have, you know, if Chicago suddenly, because of Connor Bedard, not as bad as people thought they'd be, If the Flyers prove to be feistier and despite the fact that on paper they're not good, uh, they managed to win a few more games than we thought. Well, then, you know, that that those teams at the bottom might not necessarily be the ones that we expected. I think that San Jose is going to be a mainstay. There's no doubt about that. Anaheim's so young. They're very talented, but they're so young. We expect them to be in the bottom too. But after that, There might be surprise teams Elite. that end up there without even us expecting it at this point in the year. Sure. I would put Philly in that group yeah. of, of teams that you could expect to be bottom five. But after that, yeah, who knows who it's going to be, uh, how injuries are going to play out, um, how goaltending is going to play out. So, yeah, I don't think it's a given either way. But it, having said that, I don't, I, don't, it's, it's, I don't think it's impossible the Canadians finish in the bottom five. In fact, they probably have as good a chance of finishing in the bottom five as they do higher than the bottom five but mm-hmm. we'll see but it's it's true that there's there's a lot of uh what other teams do is is also a big factor in that you were talking about uh Caden Primo and the Tampa Bay Lightning and Jonas Johansson and all that uh question about Julien Brisebois who was in attendance the other night at the Bell Center mm-hmm. uh this one's from uh maybe it's Ian we all saw Julien Brisebois was listed as a scout in attendance on Saturday What does that indicate to you? Seems like a big deal to send a guy in charge of finalizing a deal, but how much of that is window dressing? Well, and this might be news to new, but but not to you, Marc Antoine, but to maybe it's Ian. Maybe it's Ian. Maybe it's not Ian. <laughs> sure hope it's Ian. The, the intrigue, but anyhow, maybe it's Ian. Uh, Julien Brise was from Montreal and actually does show up at Canadians games somewhat randomly, relatively often. It's not uh, it's not something uncommon. He has, his family still lives in Montreal. Uh, please, he's, from, he's from Greenfield Park, if I'm not mistaken. Is that, is that correct? Uh, yeah, from I think the, so. Yeah, yeah, the South Shore. So he does show up somewhat randomly for no real reason relatively often and, and on this case and he's not he going to be listed every time he's not yeah. going to be listed every time but he was he was at the game yeah. he wasn't just listed he was at the game um just checking it out as he often does uh you know he he said he had some business in montreal i didn't 
delve any deeper. Obviously, visit with family, was going to a junior game, and then would be on his way. So I wouldn't read too much into that. I don't think he was uh, he was there for any ulterior motive or or you know he de- listen he definitely wasn't sneaking around. <laughs> he was on the <laughs> press box. The entire media course on there. Uh, several of us chatted with him for a little bit. He was not trying to be discreet about it. So I don't think there was anything to that other than Julien Breeze was from Montreal and actually comes to Montreal relatively often when you wouldn't expect to see him. So I think this was another case of that. I don't think too much should be read into that. And uh, uh, that's that, I guess. Okay, uh, moving on to 20 Grove, who asks, um, what has been learned about Sean Farrell? He went from a highly touted prospect to a no-hoper in fans' minds. His partnership with Joshua Roy has been impressive, but will it translate to the NHL? The th- I mean... That's to- another wide That's another wide range of things, huh? Yeah. No hoper. <laughs> it's been harsh. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but highly touted prospect, I mean, it depends. I remember that back when he was drafted, uh, Cole Caulfield went on social media and said to, to say that it was a steal by the Montreal Canadiens. Uh, mm-hmm. His... His uh, his career at the college level was impressive. Uh, he was dominant there. And the fact that he arrived, he played in Montreal at the end of last year was more a byproduct of the fact of how his contract would work and how he would burn, um, you know, the first year of his, uh, of his deal. He could have not played a single game. He would have burnt it anyway. But in the state that the Canadians were in, they said, well, let's see what you got, kid. And he showed us. But... It's not – you look at the way that his his camp uh, went out. He didn't have a good camp at all. I think that he did not stand out the way that a guy of his talent, of his vision should stand out. I think that he, he's not a guy who's particularly fast for his size. And he – right now at the pro level, he's really adjusting to how quickly the play closes around him. So he needs to, A, th- that vision, he needs to make quicker decisions and he needs to, he needs to f- identify spots on the ice where he'll, need, he'll be able to gain some time to make those decisions because I think that he can be a great passer, he can, he can be very creative, but because he doesn't have that, that skating ability that really uh, adds a, a real dimension to his game, he needs to f- adapt what made him successful at lower levels to the professional game. And it's not every prospect and certainly not the majority of the prospects that do that transition seamlessly. And that's why uh, we see him in the American league now and probably next year too. So is he, I'm not even sure if he's a surefire to make the NHL on a regular basis. He's got the talent to do it, but will he find that, that will he be able to make that transition I'm I'm not entirely I'm not entirely sold. I was not when I first saw him in the NHL last year, and to be honest, I'm not more convinced now. But you know, the kid's 21, so he's got plenty of time to prove me. Yeah, right. I think I think he's one. He's someone who will who will need some time in the AHL um, mm-hmm. before we can make any determination on it. You know, I think every I think the entire organization is waiting to see how he handles professional contact, uh, playing against men. You know, in tighter quarters, 
than he's ever played under. Uh, you know, I mean, he's excelled at the Olympics, he's excelled at the World Championships, but you know, it's bigger ice surfaces. Anyhow, it's, it's it's there's a lot to learn. I mean, I think the question was worded: What have we learned about Sean Farrell? I, I, not enough. <laughs> I think it's, it's, <laughs> yes, that's it's not enough that's yet. True. We need to we need more information. Yeah, but you know, off to a decent start. You know, four points in five games to start a season. Good for him. I mean, we'll see. There's no rush with someone like Sean Farrell. I don't think there's any plan for him to be slotted anywhere in the Canadians lineup on a given date. Uh, if he hits, he hits. It's a bonus. If he doesn't, I don't think it's crippling to the Canadians' plans uh, moving forward. I would not be entirely surprised if he if he became trade bait though at some point. If he if he well, shows he has, enough, he's going to have to perform. Yeah, he's going to have to. That's perform it. To if he shows enough bait, to yeah. be to become appealing to another team, and mm -hmm. so that the credentials that he got, you know, in the USHL and at the college level, along with a nifty three year degree in Harvard, which is not too shabby. Um, I think that he, yeah, he could he could become could become some sort of uh, of trade father, but we'll see because I'm not sure exactly where he where he'll fit eventually as an undersized second line forward, the third line forward potentially. Uh, maybe one more uh, one more before we move on to our next topic, Arpin. Sure. Um. Okay, this one from Sony Corleone, Arpin. Do you see a scenario where Suzuki could be traded? Is he absolutely untradeable? I mean, I guess anyone can be traded. <laughs> It's not, he's not Never. untradeable. I don't see why the Canadians would even consider trading. He's their captain. I mean, that's the one thing about, you know, the captaincy in Montreal. Is that all those guys wind up leaving at some point. But, uh, you know, I mean, Suzuki. I don't think that contract's going to necessarily age that badly. I, you know, he does have a modified no trade that kicks in uh, in 26-27, where he has a 10-team no trade list um, for the final four years of his deal. So that wouldn't prevent a trade from happening. I, I just don't – at 7.9 almost, mm -hmm. uh, you know, if he – If he turns into a solid, close to a point a game player, if his defensive game kind of takes some steps this year, I don't think that's going to be a bad contract with the cap rising at the rate that it's expected to rise. So, uh, I don't, I don't see why they would trade him. I just it, exactly. unless they were to unless they were to trade unless they were to somehow draft or acquire a high a high end center, a first line center, and the Decision comes down to let's keep Nick Suzuki or let's keep Kirby Doc, especially when Doc's contract expires. Maybe under that scenario, they would consider trading Nick Suzuki for help elsewhere. But other than that, I don't see why you would trade Nick Suzuki. Yeah. As far as I know, he's the number one centerman on this team and he's their captain. There's no, re there's no reason right now to, to trade this guy. Not because yeah. he had... You know, subpar three games into the season. <laughs> Come on, <laughs> yeah, okay. No, but uh, there is, there is, there is some. I mean, to be fair, there is some question as to his ability to become a legitimate top line center, not just the top line center of the Montreal Canadiens, mm -hmm. but a legitimate one C in the NHL. I don't think that that has been determined. You know, we've, we've heard Jeff Gordon and Ken Hughes say that they're convinced he will become that, but I, I think since they said that. 
there there is a possibility that Nick will be somewhat less than that, you know. And even if he is somewhat less than that, that doesn't mean he's not a valuable player. If he becomes like a really good two C, it just means that the Canadians have to go out and get a one C. And so, you know, I don't I don't think you're going to get that one C by trading Nick Suzuki. Maybe, mm. maybe you will, but um, but I think we're we're far away from the Canadians making that determination. I don't think they're going to make that this year. Maybe by the end of next season, if Suzuki hasn't shown an ability to be a legitimate number one center that can lead a competitive team through the playoffs, they consider it. But this is far too far too early for them to do that, and it's far too early for them to make the determination on Suzuki. I think this is a big year for Nick, and and he's got to show that potential or show not only that potential, he's got to show that ability to be a first year, uh, and not just the potential. He actually has to go out and do it. So mm. we'll see. Okay, so two more topics before we uh, wrap this show today. It's, we're running a bit longer than than in the past, but it's no big deal. We're fine. Um, thanks for thanks for uh, sending us your questions. You can do that at any any given time uh, by email at basuandgodin at gmail .com or on our Twitter account, which is just basu and godin uh i'll remind you also that you can uh, listen to us uh to the basu and godin notebook on youtube now we have our own uh, uh our, our show page uh we have also uh well we're available also on any podcast platform apple's podcast uh, spotify we're now available on google podcasts and also on amazon so anywhere you get your podcast we're there um Arben, you wanted to touch on Jonathan Kovacevic because he's um, he's been having a very good camp, and since the beginning of the season, I mean, he's still leading the team in plus minus for whatever it's worth. But he's he's also been uh, quite effective on the PK, uh, oh. and he's been blogging on some pretty interesting minutes for a guy that you know we could perceive as being his number six, number seven defenseman. He's been holding his own as a number four D on the second pairing so far, huh? Yeah, a constant. And you know, and, and, and he is—he's a guy who Martin Saint Louis goes above and beyond in terms of praise. You know, like he's really impressed his coach, the cerebral nature of him, the of of, of the person he is. Um, you know, he's a very interesting guy to talk to, but he, it also applies to how he perceives his own way of playing. And, and, you know, Marty had, a, I thought what, what was an interesting uh, sort of observation on him was that he said, you know, Kovey, I had asked him, you know, this was after the Gooley injury and, and I'd, I'd asked him to what extent he thinks losing Gooley will impact Jonathan Kovacevic's play because they had mm -hmm. obviously been paired together on the second pair up until Gooley's injury. And, you know, Marty was like, no, that's, I don't think, Nothing's going to happen there. Kovey's Kovey is Kovey no matter what, no matter who he plays with. I think he understands who he is, but that's him. He knows what he has to improve on because he knows what he is. He's a very intelligent young man. He's very honest on the things he needs to improve on, but he knows what he's good at. So I don't think it really matters of who we pair Kovey with. I think Kovey just does Kovey. And that, for Marty, is a hell of a compliment. Yeah. Very intelligent young man, very honest on the things he needs to improve on. That's all things that Marty tries to instill in players and get them to realize what you need to do. And so it's, 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 I just, there are sort of some, 
there's some hints that I think Marty gives every now and then in terms of where he's at on certain players. Uh, he's always so – he always goes one notch higher on Kovacevic. So I think that bodes well for him, for his future. Um, you know, and for now, you know, Marty, when he said he, he knows what he's good at, basically looked at defensive things. Like he defends pretty well. He's got a good stick defensively, but he sees the game developing in front of him. Pretty intelligent player on the ice again. Word intelligence. Yeah. So that's so. It's funny you look at you know we were talking earlier at the beginning of the podcast about the Canadians' future having this one to six group on defense that that could be the sort of the pillar of of a competitive Canadians team two or three down the, years down the road. I don't think anyone would look at Jonathan Kovacevic as having the potential of being part of that group, and I still don't know if that's the case, but. It's he's an interesting case for me. I just find him uh, intriguing because he's six five. He's massive. He's strong. He's smart. And you know, in the AHL, after after sort of getting acclimated to the AHL, when when the Canadians plucked him off waivers, he was coming off a season where he scored eleven goals in fifty something games with the Manitoba Moose. Yeah, um, there is some offensive, maybe some offensive potential in him. I'm not sure, but. It'll be interesting to see where that goes. I'm just gonna check on that. Well, he had a he's got a decent shot, and I think that with the moose, he had more of an opportunity to showcase it. And mm -hmm. he had he played some power play time, you know, with the moose in that season. I don't expect necessarily that that offense to translate to the NHL level. It, I'm, I won't be I won't be waiting for it. I think that his bread and butter is the fact that he's a low event defenseman that he can manage. Manage the puck, manage the uh, manage the rush from the opposing team quite well. Uh, he's not the most comfortable necessarily in in you know in making a crisp first pass. He, he's able to do it, but I mean it's not it's not necessarily his forte. But without the puck, you were mentioning his stick. He's got a very good stick, and he's mm -hmm. he's a smart guy angling the opponent, having good positioning, following them uh, when they you know he doesn't get. He doesn't get beat on the outside very often. He's a, he's a smart smart defender. Um, so it's it, it's I look at his contract though, and it's going to be interesting to see how the younger defensemen how much time they will need to develop. Whether mm -hmm. it's Reinbacker, Hudson, Mayu, name it, a bunch and of mainly, guys. Also, mainly Mayu and Reinbacker. Yeah, right shot, right side guys. You know, that's right. So because his contract. Uh, ends at the end of next year, and if by then he's, you know, he's the Canadians are in a position where they're not making the playoffs, he could be a very, very interesting addition to another team at the trade deadline next season because he would be super affordable. He would be a low maintenance guy, and he would be a guy who, with his frame and his style of play, would be useful in the playoffs. If if only for depth, but. Um, He's. I mean, if I'm pro scout for another team and I'm looking ahead, this is my. This might be someone that I would target, but it all depends on how the the, the younger defenseman will progress because a lot a lot of things can happen if his own play continues to progress. Because that's the other thing. We he, he might be 26, but he's not done getting better too. Uh, it might be that by next year. Uh, the middle of next year, we'll consider him as a guy that the Canadians 
must not lose and they must find a way to resign him to a new deal. But there's no doubt that for three years at, a sh you know, a, a tad more than 750000 a year, it's a bargain. It's really a bargain. Yeah, and it's, you know, that that contract status is interesting for a couple of reasons. A, his contract's going to expire, I think, before we know how Rhinebacker is developing, how Mayu is developing. You know, we're not really going to get a full picture on those guys by the time Kovacevic's contract expires. Also, when mm -hmm. his contract expires, he'll be a UFA. So, yes, he could be trade bait, especially at that cap number, getting a guy who's able to play in a top six on a competitive team after having presumably played it in the top four in Montreal for some period, some amount of that time between now and next season's trade deadline. Uh, but there was like a funny little interaction with him last week. Um, you know, at one point last week, he was like a plus six, I think. So he was, he was second in the league and plus minus or whatever. And, and he was asked about it and he's like, ah, oh, you know what? I don't really pay attention to stats and I try to keep my focus on, And I'd always kind of thought that Kovacevic was like a bit of a numbers guy. Like he'll go and get the, the analytics reports that the Canadians analytics department provides yeah. and look through them. And so I kind of challenged, I was like, well, you might not be a plus minus guy, but I mean, are you a stats guy? And he kind of paused and he's like, well, well, stats get you paid. <laughs> Maybe not plus minus, but goals and assists get you paid. And so I pay attention to those and I was like, oh, that's funny. You know, I never really. Didn't really expect that from Jonathan Kovacevic, but that's when we started talking about his offensive potential. And he was, again, pretty self-aware, you know, like I was kind of like talking about when you see Mike Matheson and what he does at the, at the offensive blue line, the risks he takes to keep the pucks in, um, using his skill where losing the puck will result in a breakaway. Do you kind of cringe or do you say, oh, maybe that could be me one day? He's like, no, that'll never be me. But where my offense can come from and where it came from at the AHL level is part of that second wave on the attack, using my shot, picking my spots to kind mm -hmm. of kind of sneak into the slot and, and, and convert a play from a forward. Um, he's like, I could see myself doing more of that as I get more comfortable, and I think my shot's good enough that I can get a few passing goalies and uh, ultimately help him get paid. He didn't say that, but, I mean, it's, that's, that's kind of what he was inferring because he's going to be up for – Uh, a pretty decent payday. I mean, he's going to be a UFA at 28 uh, with whatever body of work he puts together in Montreal. So if he gets to UFA status, I mean, I think he could sign not a super rich NHL contract, but in real life terms, pretty rich contract. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. I remember talking to Jake Evans after he signed his contract and he only makes, well, sorry, I shouldn't say only, but, you know, he makes 1.7 a year. And so... For a seventh round pick, you know, three year deal, it's five million bucks, not counting taxes and everything, you know. So let's say half of that, two and a half million dollars to kind of start your life. Uh, you'll have that by age, you know, 28 or so. 20, yeah, he'll be 28 when his contract, when his contract is 29, maybe. So I remember talking to him about it and I was like, you know, that's, that's a lot of money for a guy before he's 30 you know, to kind of get your life going. And he's like, yeah, absolutely. And his brother is like in finance and like, yeah, yeah, you know, has like all these ways to kind of manage that money and everything. So you look, I think of Jonathan Kovacevic and that's what I think of. Like if he comes out of this signing, like let's say a three-year deal as a UFA or a four-year deal at two and a half million dollars a year, you know, yeah. that's, I could see that because the, the thing for him, you say he's not enough. It's life changing. Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah But yeah. you say you say that he's not he you know, stats is what 
will get him paid. It's not for in his case, it's not goals and assists. It's the real stat that matters is 19 minutes a night. Yeah, that's what exactly. he's playing so far, and that's yeah. that's what is going to earn him. It's a not good only contract. 19 minutes a night. It's it's and you know you can poo poo, you can poo poo plus minus because I do all the time, and it's it's really it's it's, it's a very it's a stat that has no context, right? Yeah. So take that for, but, but at five on five right now with that, with that time, Kovacevic has been on the ice for five Canadians goals and two goals against. Um, considering what situationally he's been playing um, and he has not been on for that many power play one, goals against. When he's one goals playing. against actually five on five. It's five, four, five goals, four and one. one oh, right. Against. I looked at, I looked at even strength. Sorry. So yeah. So, Um, so it's, it's probably, yeah, five and one. So it's promising from that respect. Uh, if, and the more minutes you play and the fewer goals you give up is that resonates with other NHL organizations that re resonates with the Canadians as well. I mean, it could be yeah. a reason for them to want to keep him. So he's really a guy who doesn't get discussed a lot as being part of the solution in Montreal, but I think he could be an interesting bridge guy. Like a guy who helps – listen, David Savard I think is going to be gone probably at next year's trade deadline, right? Yeah. Which will free up $3.5 million from the Canadians' cap ledger. Uh, but Kovacevic at that point might be considered as a veteran guy who could sort of anchor – play somewhat the same role as David Savard plays now. And maybe not the same way that he does, but kind of that that experienced, more veteranish guy as they integrate – Reinbacher, Mayu, all these, all these, you know, maybe Engstrom at that point. I mean, who knows? Like, I mean, you know, Hudson, there's a lot of young, young defense we're going to come. So maybe they'll see some usefulness in keeping yeah, a guy you're right. around to sort of help those guys. It's and a very good point. The way he is, personality wise, uh, everything that we just, I just mentioned in that quote from Martin St. Louis, you want your young players to be self-aware like that. Mm -hmm. You want your young players to know what they have to improve. You want your young players to look inward the way we started the podcast talking about Nick Suzuki doing. You want that. So maybe they'll see him as part of the solution and, and maybe we should be you know, considering him as a possibility uh, to be more than just a great waiver pickup and, and a good story. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. Sign him. Sign the guy right now. <laughs> um, <laughs> Well, hey, uh, throughout the league, will have, you will have great trade value at next year's trade deadline too. So that's that's definitely worth considering at, at, yeah. his, at his cap at his cap hit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so throughout the league these last few days, there's been a lot of discussion around decentralizing the draft, which means that teams would not go, would not bring all of their staff, all of their management to the city where the draft is held, and they would not have to be an NHL city necessarily because mm -hmm. it would be in a much smaller venue. But basically the war rooms, every team would have their war room probably in their own city. And uh, the prospects would be invited to the same place. There would be one represented from each team that would be there to basically to connect and greet the, the, the players that they pick. Well, basically to go on TV. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So it would it would dramatically change the way the event is presented and the sort of TV show that it that it becomes. I would be surprised if that representative was a player. Yeah. 
it would probably be a player on the current edition of the team, you know, because you, you, anyone who's of any importance in a front office would have to be in that war room, you would think. You would think, exactly, yeah. yeah. So this was brought up uh, at the last um, uh, Board of Governors meeting. Some some teams expressed an interest in having that formula changed, so much so that uh, Gary Bettman sent out a memo uh, to consult all 32 teams Uh, teams have to answer by tomorrow afternoon uh, mm-hmm. as to whether they're they're willing or they they see favorably a change in the format of and decentralize the draft uh, most likely as soon as 2025 or are they more in fam- in favor of a status quo uh, the Canadians have yet as we as we um, record this podcast have yet to send their answer uh, they've It's been described as a as a 11th hour discussion uh, because there's a lot of pros and cons to each. Um, but for sure, I think that there's an understanding among the Canadians that uh, the scouts would prefer to be on site because it's sort of a reward for the for the work that they've done throughout the year. There's a coaches convention that's being held uh, in the draft city every year, and that's something that coaches like to attend. Um, and also I know that discussing with other people that sometimes GMs like to be where everybody is because then you can line up meetings with other GMs, uh, with other, with agents and sort of make it into, turn this into a big powwow and line them up like an assembly line one after the other, which makes business a great opportunity. It's a great opportunity for tampering basically. It's well, yeah. tampering. Ahead of hey, hey tampering is not allowed. It doesn't exist. It's, it's a perfect tampering venue. For sure. <laughs> Just ahead of free agency. So no yeah. doubt about it. So there's a lot of there's a lot of pros to keeping things the way they are. How do you see this playing out? Uh I mean, I don't I don't know. I I it's, I don't know how it's gonna play out. It sounds very uh it sounds very Like the way you just described it is, I think, how most of the league is looking at it. There are pros, there are cons. The cost is is can be astronomical. Listen, it's you know the draft was just in Nashville. Hotel prices in Nashville are never good. Um, so you know, think of bringing fifty people to Nashville. That's fifty hotel rooms times they're there for about a week or five, six days or so. You know, they're they're well ahead of the draft. So that's all. But it's it's. Yeah, but the 50 people from that organization, they don't they don't live in the city where the team plays. So even if they have their war room in their own city, yeah, but the hotel prices, still have to but the hotel prices in your own city will not be inflated because of a massive event and a massive influx of people coming congregating on one city. Mm-hmm. So there is there is a certain cost element or certain cost savings if you do it in your own city. Uh I just think I don't know. I don't I I find it, I haven't gotten a good sense from fans. I know the fans in the building The vibe in the building would change. It would be less. It would be less of an entertaining live oh, event. Yeah. yeah. If if it was done in a decentralized way, even though the NFL draft is decentralized and it is a massive event, public flocks to it. But that's the NFL. That's different. Uh, the NBA is a decentralized event largely. Fans go to that as well. So maybe NHL fans would still go to, especially if they put on a decent show. Um, selfishly it's cool having all the gms there you know i don't know if anyone knows how the media cover the draft but there's a draft floor then there's this kind of this 
grandstand or what we call the riser, the media riser, where all the media sit. And then there's this, this metal rail that separates the two. And basically, you can hang out on that rail all day or all night or whatever and, and, and sort of pick GMs off as they're walking by and like get all yeah. these interviews. So, so for the media, it's amazing. Uh, but to the average fan, does it really make that big of a difference? one way or the other i'm not sure i don't know i don't i think maybe maybe the television product could be even better in a decentralized way i'm not sure um how fans would feel about it i just know how i feel about it and i wouldn't like it i I, I want no i want the status quo yeah we saw we saw during the pandemic how how it would look you know and it was not exciting it was not very exciting i think that there are improvements that can be done into the protocol of the whole event You know, the mm-hmm. parades of people going on the stage and the big picture and all that. There's, It can be tighter and yeah. it can be improved. You could find a way to squeeze the first two rounds in the same, same evening. I was evening. just about to say, I would, if I would like to tighten it up and, and add value to being a second-round pick and get, yeah. give the second-round picks that same feeling and not feeling like they're a failure just because they didn't get picked in the first round. I mean, you have to draw the line somewhere, but still, getting picked – The difference between the 32nd and 33rd pick is not as drastic as it seems <laughs> based on the pop and circumstance of, of that pick being made. Yeah. So uh, it'll be an interesting uh, vote because it's a, it's, a, it's a discussion that came out a little bit out of nowhere. I, I was not expecting that. But all of a sudden, it becomes like a front burner issue, uh, you know, at, at the league level. Well, they, still haven't, they still haven't booked a, a venue in Vegas. for the I draft. know. And I think maybe it's partly because of this, because of the possibility of this happening. Like if you know, if if as rumored, they're 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 they would hold the draft in the sphere. Well, that's they can only do that in a decentralized draft. They can't do that. I don't think no, they can because... build. I don't think they can build a draft floor in the sphere. <laughs> like, yeah, I'll tell you more about it next week when I visit. <laughs> so, <laughs> all right. So uh, anyway, we'll see with the. Uh, So I, I wish I had uh, more um, more of a clear-cut answer from the Canadians, but uh, they're not. They were not sure exactly which uh, on which side of the fence they would go. Um, but I think it's it's pro- this probably the case in a lot of NHL organizations right now. That yeah. Internally, there's going to be different people with different priorities that are going to want their priorities to be prioritized. Sorry for you saying the word priorities a lot, but it's uh, it's you know. I think ultimately the owner probably has the biggest say, the guy who foots the bill for, for everyone going to the draft. Um, but yeah, the pro, I think the pros and cons, the list of pros and cons is pretty well even on both mm-hmm. sides. So I think the way the Canadians are looking at it, not, not having a clear decision, you know, less than a day before they have to submit one, is probably pretty telling for what most of the NHL teams are going through at this point. Right. I know that uh, Kyle Davidson once told a uh, daily face-off in an interview that uh, he was sort of paranoid of using his phone and having phone conversations on the floor because there are so many people that are gathered in a tiny space that basically everybody can hear everybody. And he doesn't want to disclose his strategy to everybody. And he basically made sure, for example, the Kirby doctorate, he made sure that he had all his business done before he left the hotel uh, yeah. prior to coming to the draft. But there's another GM who told me, well, this is my job is to know what other GMs want to do. That's anticipating what they want to do, fine. But there's nothing that I could hear on the draft floor that might 
interfere or impact what I'm about to do in the next half hour or so. I've got mm -hmm. other things to worry about at that point. And yeah. anyway, at the, on the draft floor, there's a lot of discussions around moving picks up or down, you know, and basically it goes down to who's got the best offer, but it's not like everybody's going to advertise their whole blueprint for the upcoming two, three years on a big sign. And that's basically, floor. and that's basically done by text message anyway. Yeah. Text message slash phone call slash whatever, but it's it's not the days of a, of someone a GM getting up from his table and walking over to another team's table and having a conversation with the GM that's caught on camera and everyone freaks out. Like we see that less and less. Yeah, uh, that's what was interesting about the Rogers outage during the Montreal draft. <laughs> everyone freaked out. You know, it's, they they did have to do that because no one's cell phone was working. Yeah, but um, but yeah, it's not. It's not really a thing, and that's why when 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 two GMs are talking on the draft floor now, it's probably an indication that there's nothing going on between them, as opposed to the opposite. Because otherwise, if they were doing actual business, it would be done by phone and not in a public way, the way. Or when they need to go pee at the same time, like yeah, the little girls go, that go yeah. to the bathroom at the same time. <laughs> yeah, that's it. Or they want to go get a snack, that's maybe it. go get a cup of coffee and a hot dog or whatever. Shoot the shit a bit. Yeah. Yeah. All right, Arpin, let's wrap this up. Uh, thank you so much for listening, everybody. Uh, we'll be back on Friday uh, with another edition of the Bessie Wengadai Notebook. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Uh, thanks for to everybody at SDPN. Make sure that you uh, listen to their other excellent shows. And uh, that's it. Anything to add, my friend? No. Have a good week, everyone. We will talk on Friday after, uh, after a whole bunch of Canadians games. Yeah. Let's talk to you then. Love to cheer. Bye.